Welcome, everyone. Good afternoon. And as Pastor Matt said, that we're starting a new series today um, on the fruit of the Spirit, and it's called Walk This Way. Um, and our hope is that over these next few weeks, you know, if you've been in church for a while, you've heard more than one or two sermons on the fruit of the Spirit. So our hope is that as you hear these messages, um, you allow the Holy Spirit to bring things to you in a new and fresh way. Um, and also that you're prayerful about asking him what is one particular area that you can um, allow him to grow in you, one of the fruit that he uh, draws your attention to. Um, so today, um, our message is called Finding Your Place at the Table, the Fruit of Peace. Um, and so um, uh, our scripture is going to be out of Luke 14, um, verse 1 and verses 7 to 11. And so if you need a Bible, we could feel free to raise your hand. The ushers will give you one, or you can follow the screen over here uh, above them. Here's the reading of the word. One Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. When he noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table, he told them this parable. He said, when someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor. For a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. And if so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, give this person your seat. Then humiliated, you will have to take the least important place. But when you are invited, take the lowest place so that when your host comes, he will say to you, friend, move up to a better place. Then you will be honored in the presence of all the other guests. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Amen. So let's pray. Holy Spirit, we ask only one thing for our time. We ask that you would give us ears to hear what you would say to us, and that you grant us that the eyes of our heart would be opened, that we can receive and take in those words and allow them to impact our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. So um, a few years ago, there was a movie that came out, pretty popular, and many of you will know it when you see the image coming on the screen. It's called The Devil Wears Prada. And so the two main characters in this movie, on the right, uh, Anne Hathaway plays uh, a young woman in this movie, and, and uh, Meryl Streep plays the boss-to-be. And so Anne is this, um, this woman from a well-to-do family. She's going to Northwestern. She's very achieved. Um, she's a journalism major. And so she's looking for her next step in life. And so she comes to, uh, comes to Meryl Streep's office, who is the editor-in-chief of a glamour magazine. Think about Vogue. It's a high-end glamour magazine. Um, and she's, she's looking to get a job there. And so as they talk back and forth, one thing that poor Anne lets slip is she makes it clear to Meryl Streep that she's tried everything else, and that's why she's there looking for a job. So that's a tip. Job seekers do not say that. And so they're already off on a bad foot, right? And so um, Meryl Streep says to her, she says, well, she says, what are you doing here? What do you want? Um, and so Anne says, well, I, I still think I can do a really good job. And, she's, and Meryl says, well, let me get this straight. You've never, till this moment, you have no idea who I am. And she said, no. And so Meryl says, um, and you have no sense of style or fashion. And so she said, well, it depends. She said, no, no, that wasn't a question. 
from that moment, this young woman, she had self-confidence, she knew who she was, she had her own sense of style, she had her own sense of who God had created her to be, and she was secure in who she was. From that one moment, that one exchange, she begins to go in a downward spiral in her sense of peace and her sense of identity and self-worth. She begins to question her clothing. She begins to question her friends. She begins to question her hair, her weight. Everything is thrown up in the air. And she determines that she's going to do one thing. She is going to change herself and change everything and anything about herself so that she can get the approval of this woman that she has never met until this moment. In essence, what she does is trade in all of her peace, all that's been built into her, all of her life to get her to this point, she's going to trade it in for the approval of one person. And one lesson from this is that peace, inner peace, is really fragile. It needs to be nurtured. It needs to be cultivated. But the thing is that peace can only be cultivated in the true self, the you that God created you to be. Let me repeat that. Peace can only be cultivated in the true self, the you that God created you to be, not in any false image that the world would label or put on you. In our passage, um, in our passage in Luke 14, um, Jesus comes, he comes to the Pharisees for, for whatever reason. Um, I'll talk a little bit about that. They invite him to this, um, to this occasion. Um, and he, he has, he's been ministering all around. He's been doing all kinds of miracles. As we know, he is Jesus. And so he comes before the Pharisees. And one thing we do know, we don't know exactly why he was invited, but we know one thing. We know that Jesus was not a friend of the Pharisees. We know they didn't invite him because they said, oh my God, this guy, we've got to invite to our party because he is just awesome. We love him. No, we know that what they did not do is they did not want to see Jesus in any way, shape, or form. They had had enough of him. I think the reason that they invited him to the party is the old saying, you keep your friends close and you keep your enemies closer. I think they invited him because they wanted to see right up close and personal. They had it in their minds, if we get this guy and we watch him in the crowds, let's see him be a fraud. We know that he's going to mess up. It's just a matter of time. It's just a matter of time. So we're going to travel where he travels. We're going to watch him. And when he messes up, we're going to be there to see it. And we're going to be there to tell everybody, see? We told you to stop believing in this guy. We told you to stop following this guy. We are the ones that are here to protect you, which of course was a lie. Because the Pharisees had one goal. They cooperated with the Roman Empire for their own gain. And so that meant whatever it took, they were going to do to keep the status quo. Jesus was rocking the boat, and they didn't like it. They didn't like his claims of being the son of God, this righteousness and all that. They didn't like it. They liked things the way they were. Now, the thing is, I can imagine um, what it must have been like. In a sense, Jesus comes in and everybody begins to stop. And, you know, they start whispering and staring. Because 
Haven't we all had that experience? You know what it's like to go someplace and somehow you just don't feel like you fit in. You just don't feel like the people there necessarily want you there. It's something about you that just doesn't fit into the scheme of things. We've all had that experience in one shape or form, right? But I know what it's like to be the Pharisee. I know what it's like to be the watcher. So at my train station, um, on any given day, there's always uh, usually a man on the platform preaching his heart out, preaching the gospel, loud, proud, doesn't care about anybody else. And, you know, I don't know how you guys, I don't know if you, that experience happens at your train station or not, and I don't know what you would do if you encountered it. But what I can tell you is what I do not do. What I do not do, when he starts preaching, I don't say, that's right, brother, preach it. Oh, yes, 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 I'm feeling it. Ooh, Holy Spirit, ooh. No. What I do, and don't judge me, those of you that are not like, don't judge me. I know you wouldn't do it either. What I do, I turn, walk to my train, fast as I can, get out of there. I don't want to deal with it. And the reason, and I'm not proud of that, I'm not. The reason I do it, though, is because I realize there's a part of me that just doesn't want God to come to me like that. You know, I don't want to be the person with the 10-foot Bible. You know what I mean? I don't want to be that person. I don't want to be that Christian that people talk about. And so like the Pharisees, I allow myself to be offended. I'm offended that God wants to use this way. That's a flaw. Now, the truth is, we all know that we are God's handiwork. We know that he loves us. We know that he created us. He knitted us, he knit us together in our mother's womb. He called each and every one of us to be in this space, in this time, before the beginning of time. We know that. But the thing is, we also know it's really a challenge to live the true life that God called us to live. It's really challenging to live out of my God-given self and not to allow others to influence me and change me for their own purposes. And so the question is, why? What stops me? What stops you? What stops us from just living this God-given life as he's called us? Why do we stop short? Well, I have a couple of reasons that I think might help us. The first is fear. I'm just afraid. I may be afraid of what others may think. When I was a young person, I was afraid of what my parents would think. I wanted to make sure I was doing things that they would want me to do, living the life they would want me to live. And so it's just fear. What if I fail? What if I take this road of who I think God's called me to be and I fail? Then what? And what are they going to say? What is everybody going to say? The second thing is a need to control. Some of us have this life experience where people that we've depended on, people that's ha that have had authority in our lives, they've let us down. And it could be all kinds of reasons. It doesn't have to be something negative or really, really uh, deep. They just let us down. And so from that moment, part of me just separates and I decide... I am going to control my life from here on in. I am not giving over control to anyone. I am not allowing anybody or anything to tell me how to live my life. I will 
determine my own destiny. I'll do it myself because I know how to do it better. And in doing that, I actually, the others that I'm pushing away unconsciously, it's God too. Because I really don't, you know, I'm not sure if he's even going to let me down. And so I control it and I do it myself. And then the third thing is voices. And this is a big one. We're going to spend our time on this one for a bit. The reality is, you know this culture we live in. We are bombarded 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. There are no breaks. There are no holidays. We're constantly bombarded with voices, constantly, whether it be from billboards, auditory voices, or it could be just visual voices, right? At billboards, we have... We have Built, we have electronic media, we have print media, we have digital media, we have social media, we have constant, constant influx of voices telling us who to be, what to be, what to look like, what you should do, what school you go to, where you should work, who you should marry, where you should live, and it just, the cycle never ends. It's all the time. It's so much that a lot of times we're immune to the fact that it's happening because it's so constant. It's just ubiquitous. And social scientists have said at this point that we spend more and more time on a daily basis doing what they call impression management. Impression management. And so impression management is I spend time, lots of time, trying to determine and to create a vision of myself for you to see that will be approved by you. No one just takes a picture and posts it. Come on. We got to crop. We got to get the right filter. If it doesn't look good, if I look fat, I want to take another pose. If this, you don't look good, you got to go fix up before we get the picture again. We have this whole process we go through. Okay? Everything is managing how we're being seen. And the thing about our culture, too, which is really a little bit insidious, is sometimes we don't stay conscious with the fact that the media that's coming to us, it, it, is, it is designed and marketed to create dissatisfaction, right? Because dissatisfaction feeds consumerism. That's what we do. We sell stuff. To get you to buy stuff, I've got to make you think you need the stuff. Well, in order for you to need the stuff, you've got to know that there's something wrong with you so you can buy the stuff that I'm selling. But then if you ever notice, have you ever noticed that the stuff you buy is never like the only thing? There's always next six months, there's always a part two of the stuff. There's always a next gen of the stuff. It's like, I thought this was going to solve the problem. Nope, that was for this year. Now you have to realize we've enhanced it. It's a better product next year. Now you got to buy that one. And you just go on this treadmill, right? You're kind you're silent, but I know if I go around and look at everybody's phone, yeah, very few of you are going to have a phone as old as mine, okay? We're constantly upgrading, and I just say it as a joke, it's not an indictment, but it just shows you how we live in this culture, and it's just natural, and it's become normative for us. The Pew Center did a study um, a while ago, and they, they surveyed 13 to 17-year-olds, and they asked them, what is the biggest thing impacting your peers? The biggest thing, 13 to 17-year-olds. 70 percent, 7-0, 70% of teens said that anxiety and depression were the major thing impacting their peers. 
13 to 17-year-olds, 70% said anxiety and depression, the major thing impacting their peers. So the reality is, let's be honest here, we're not in a culture where we're, uh, you know, we're, we're marketing peace. The truth is what we're doing is we're breeding and we're marketing anxiety. And we make a lot of money doing it. And the trouble is, what happens is, as I begin to continually ingest the voices that come at me nonstop, if I don't have a filter and I continue to take those things in, I'm on the treadmill of, now I'm taking in the voices, I have to adjust myself to the voices so that the me that I present to the world matches the voices, and then the voices go to another thing and I gotta adjust, and I'm constantly moving and it just becomes this infinity loop. And I'm always trying to become a better version of myself. The problem is the better version is not real. It's just something created out there to continue us on the treadmill of searching. And when I continue that, I continue that search, unconsciously I'm, I'm distancing my thoughts and my ways from the path that God would have for me. Because remember, he's already created me. I have a self, but I'm over here managing this other self. And so I just keep sliding further and further away from the true self that he created me to be. And it creates more and more insecurity. And the further I get away from him, the more insecure I feel. Whenever peace and wholeness that God has given us is sacrificed or put on the side burner, whenever that happens, we are also shortchanging the way that God can come and breathe life and breathe peace and breathe wholeness into us. If I don't have the peace that God offers me, then I'm going to find it someplace else. If I don't have the peace that he offers me, I'm going to look for it somewhere else in my, my financial status, my education, my job, my kids. There'll be someplace else I'm going to search it because we all need a sense of self. We need to feel whole. We need to feel at peace. And so if I don't have the true source of peace, I'm going to have a false sense of peace because it's better than nothing. So one of the questions as I was thinking and praying about this, te this text is, I wondered why, you know, why did Jesus bring the Pharisees this parable about a wedding feast and a place at a table? Like why, why was that a, a, a parable that he felt that this particular group needed to hear? And so I think that there's a couple of, um, there's a couple of really good reasons why he, why he chose to go this, this direction. Um, and I think the first is that um, he is challenging everything about our image-creating culture. Not just for the Pharisees, but for us here as well. 
Because a wedding, in Jesus' day, a wedding was the ultimate social occasion. A wedding was not just about a bride and a groom getting married. A wedding was about your family. A wedding was about your clan. A wedding was about your town. Who came to your wedding showed how important you were in society. And what you had at your wedding and how long it was all said something about you and your family. Who came to the wedding and where they sat was key. The front of the table were going to be for the important people. And certainly the Pharisees were always at the front of the table. Always at the front of the table. The front of the table were for important people. People with authority. People with power. People we wanted to impress. Those were the people at the front of the table. The back of the table, those were some other family members. You know, the cousins, nephews, nieces, whoever. They were at the back of the table. And this is the world of the Pharisees. This is the world. Power and authority and your place in society dictated where you sat. That was the place of importance. But unfortunately, that's also our world. That is exactly how we live today as well. So um, these folks here, um, two on the end, celebrities, and um, the man in the middle is just that, the man in the middle. These three people represent um, what's being called the biggest college scam that the, um, that the Justice Department has ever uh, prosecuted, ever, ever. So right now we're up to about 50 uh, people that are, that are being prosecuted in this scam, and um, the parents are being accused of paying um, admission people to give their children a seat at uh, exclusive universities, um, Stanford, Yale, etc. Millions of dollars. One parent has been accused of paying $6.5 million for a seat at a college. $6.5 million. Now for me, as just this middle-class person, I'm like, what do you need a seat at a college for if you've got $6.5 million? Just give the kid the 6.5 mil. Hey, give them the dividends off of that. They'll be good. You know, but that's me, okay? So instead of looking at them through that lens of, you know, rich people problems, celebrity problems, oh my goodness, poor them. Oh, you're going to prison. Oh, let me just eat back a tear for you. I realized, and I thought about it as I was thinking about this text, these are just parents. And I think they equate with the Pharisees because what they show us is anybody can be consumed with anxiety and fear and panic. These people are, what if they just simply, regardless of how wealthy they are, regardless of how much talent and how popular or famous they are, they still can't escape the anxiety of what's going to happen to their children. Because if they don't live in peace, if they don't know the Prince of Peace, what do you think? How do you think they can avoid having anxiety? How do you think they can avoid fear? They're parents just like us. And I know what it's like to be a parent and want the best for your child. 
You know, my kids were in school, I was, you know, constantly working with them, whatever the subject is, we're doing work, we're, you know, we're trying to do stuff at home in the summers, always looking for this other program, that other program. And math actually was my thing. I, I love math and I'm really good at math, and so I'm the parent that all children hate, right? Because I feel like, oh, spare time, let's do math. There's no kid on the planet that's like, yay, yay. That was me. And so my daughter, at one point when she was in sixth grade, she was having trouble with math. And so, um, well, I'm not, that's not going to stop us. We'll just do more math. <laughs> We're doing math once a day. We'll do math twice a day. We get to. We're always going to be doing math. <laughs> I was undaunted. That didn't bother me one bit. We're going to solve this math thing. Yep, we're going to solve it. But the thing was, it's not, it's not a bad thing to help your children. It's not a bad thing to want the best for them. That's not it. The problem was for me, I had so much anxiety. And so my anxiety about it was driving the situation more than really what needed to happen. You know, I don't know if you've ever found yourself in that dilemma. And so um, one, one year, that one year, when, like I said, when she was in sixth grade, um, she came home and she hadn't been doing well and her report card, she brought her report card home and it wasn't good. Her math grade wasn't good. And I was in a, I mean, in, inside of me, I'm in panic mode, right? I'm in full-on panic mode, full-on. But I had gone to emotionally healthy classes here at New Life Fellowship Church. And so I said to myself, oh, I'm going to have an emotionally healthy conversation with my daughter. <laughs> and so I prepped myself. I'm channeling Pastor Pete and Jerry like, oh, okay, what would they do? What would they say? And so I said, oh, wow, it looks like this didn't work out really well. Oh, how are you feeling? <laughs> that was good, right? That was good. And she said, I'm great. Now I'm getting really suspicious. And the levels of anxiety, when I say the, I mean, my heart is racing, hands are getting sweaty. Oh my gosh, she really wants to be a failure. She's gonna be a failure. Pushed it down though, because remember, I'm back to my emotionally healthy skills. Push it down, push it down, push it down. And I said, oh, well, that's interesting. What? Tell me about that. Why do you feel great? And she looked at me like, like she, like I'm crazy. And she says, because now I know what to do. I felt this small. Because the thing is, she passed the test. She knew at that young age that her sense of self and her sense of worth and her peace did not come from any external thing. She knew that a class, a grade, did not define her status in the eyes of God. She knew as a child, as a child, she knew God loves me. I can make mistakes. I get to make a mistake and start fresh. That's why Jesus is constantly comparing children to the kingdom of God. Because they don't have any sense of the world's pressure on them. Try to get a, a, a two-year-old to be concerned about their image. They 
don't care. Not only don't they really care what you think, they don't care what anybody else thinks either. They're enjoying life. They're having a good time. They're exploring. I was driving the other day and I was coming down uh, not too far from here. And there, you know, there's, there's always, I don't know, the syndrome of parent walking this way and the kid like looking that way. You ever see kids like that? They're supposed to be walking with their parents, but they're always looking like this. And so I get to this corner and there's this guy, he's walking with his son across and the, the kid is doing the backward look and for some reason he's looking at my car. Now the father's clueless, he's looking for, he's going somewhere, right? And so I wave at the little boy, and the little boy smiles, and he just waves back. He's just like, life is a joy, I'm having a good time. What's to worry about? And that's how Jesus wants us to be. That's what he wants us to live like. He wants us to realize that we don't have to image create. We don't have to keep cropping and, and airbrushing in the real, in our, in our, in, in, in our lives. That who he's made us to be and who he's called us to be is good. It's good. In fact, he said it was very good. The second thing that I think he wants us to know is he's trying to give the Pharisees, and I believe us as well, a vision of who he is. So Jesus, who was rightfully entitled to the front of the table, if anybody deserved to be in a place of royalty at the wedding feast, it was Jesus Christ himself. But he didn't come that way. He came down as a man. He divested himself of all of his kingship, and he came down as a man, and he forced himself to suffer the lives that we live to be taunted, to be persecuted, to be ridiculed, to have depression, to be sad. He did all of that because he had a bigger vision in mind. He didn't care if he was at the front. He knew who he was. He knew he was with the Father. He knew he was one with the Father. He didn't need impression management. He did it because he saw us. He gave up what he could have done on that cross. He could have called the legions. He could have called on 20,000 leagues of angels to bring him off of that cross. He didn't do it because he thought about us. And when he said, it's finished, the host, the heavenly host, called him up to another seat higher. And he's sitting there right now at the right hand of the Father. That's what this passage tells us. We don't have to be afraid to not be in the front. It's okay to be in the back because in the back, that's where Jesus is. That's where he is. He's waiting for us at the back of the table. Now, the front is not just about celebrity and wealth. There's nothing wrong with being, if that's the game, they're a celebrity, you're wealthy. There's nothing wrong with any of that because we have our own ways of being Pharisees. So if you're at your workplace and people are telling racist jokes or sexist jokes, do you, do you tell them this is not funny? Do you walk away? Or do you just kind of like, I'll just blend in, you know, because image creating. If you're in school and you know you have friends in your class that are doing things that they shouldn't be doing and definitely things you don't want to do, do you step out and say, hey, this is not for me? Or again, 
Is it just, I just want to look like I'm part of the crowd and I just blend in? If you're a parent, instead of doing what you feel is best for your family with your child, are you worried about what everybody else is, the play dates they have, and they're taking the kids on this vacation, and we've got to keep up with them, and we've got to go to this birthday party and make sure we have a better gift and make sure, are you doing that or are you just being who you are? And raising your children the way that you want them to be raised. And if it's not fancy, and if it's not shiny, and if it's not glitzy, can that just be okay? We don't have to succumb to this image creation. Now the other thing is this takes work. It is not easy for us to live in our true selves. We can't do it alone and we can't do it without any help. We certainly need God himself to breathe on us and to do a work in our lives, but we also need to do some things ourselves. And so one of the things that I think that helps me is to just get to God, to spend time with God, whether it be in silence, whether it be for me, it's centering prayer, I try to do that anywhere from five minutes to 20 minutes every day, just to be in the presence of God, not to get anything from him, but just to have that peace for myself. And then community. Surround yourself. Be with people that encourage your true self. Be with people that love you for who you are, not for who they want you to be. We all need that. And then the third thing, which is a big thing, is acknowledging limits. I cannot be what everyone wants me to be. And the more I try to do that, the worse actually I feel. And I have to acknowledge and realize that If I can't do everything for everybody all the time, people are going to be disappointed in me. And that's okay. I have to be willing to let that be. Look, this is the thing. What I didn't tell you about um, the story with Meryl Streep either is that she on the outside looked wonderful. But inside, her husband wanted a divorce. Her children, she had no relationship with them. She was very disconnected with them. And she didn't really even have any friends. God is calling each of you to a different reality. He wants you to realize that he created you and crafted you uniquely for this time in history. He's not looking for you to be the person next door. He's not even looking for you to be like your spouse, your brother, your mother, your father. He's looking for you to be yourself because he created you. He knows what he's calling out of you. He knows what he put in you. And I'm going to ask the worship team to come forward. I have a question for you. If you are not going to live the life God called you to live authentically, who's going to live it? There is no other you coming. There's no other you coming in any other generation. It's only you. You are the only you. So how are you going to live the life that he's given you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your faithfulness and we thank you for the cross. We thank you, Lord, that you paved the way for us. You showed us by how you came down from the heavenly place, came down to earth, came down to our level to love us, to make a path, to make a way for us, what it's like to live the true, authentic life. And so we thank you, Lord. We pray that you would give us grace 
and courage to walk in your footsteps. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Please stand. There's one invitation that I have. Um, I want to ask the prayer teams to come to my left. That'll be on your right. And those that are offering communion to come, um, to come over to my right. There is only one you. And you only get one go round. This is it. Doesn't matter how old you are. Doesn't matter how young you are. This is it. This is your moment. And so God's challenge is, are you going to step up? Are you going to move up, come up higher, and be who I've called you to be? Are you willing to take a risk? Everybody's not going to love your decision. Everybody's not going to applaud you. It may not make you popular, but you will find peace. That's the byproduct of living the authentic life that Jesus calls you to live. You will find peace, the peace that he's promised us. You will find it in your authentic life. And so for some of you, you need to come and just pray with somebody. That's part of the community that you may need. Just come and say, I need, I've been living this false life. I've had these, I have these layers of a false self on me and I need grace to pull them off and to step out into the light. Let somebody pray with you. And for others, just having communion, just having a moment where you can be present with Jesus Christ will be what you need. We are in a time 
where there are so many voices trying to tell each and every one of us who we should be. And this is where it's got to stop. You got to put a stake in the ground and say, this is it. This is me. And I'm going to live it. It may not always be easy. That's okay. Jesus is in it. He's in it. That's all we need. That's all we need. So I'm going to pray for us. Please put out your hands and I'll uh, pray a blessing over each and every one. Um, And please come, come for prayer and come for communion. So brothers and sisters and sons and daughters of the living God, I pray that God would bless you, that he would shine his face upon you, that he would show you the true true life that he's called you to live, that he would help you to unpeel the layers of false self that you've gathered over the years and that you would have the courage to step out into the life, the you that God called you to be, and that you would have peace and joy, which is what he's promised to you. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you all. Have a good afternoon.